From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Friday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Our very own Vice President of Theology, Colin Donovan, is in the house, ready to take your phone calls. Grab one of these open lines at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line <coughs> at two at one two zero five two seven one two nine eight five. And you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at ewtn.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host to see is every Friday, Colin Donovan. How are you? Doing pretty good, Jack. I told you before the show, if I start mm-hmm. to nod off, just kick me. Uh, I was uh, Father Joseph Mary Wolf and I were on a plane at 4.15 this morning, uh, heading back to Birmingham from a terrific event in uh, Toledo, Ohio, for our affiliate Annunciation Radio, and a big shout-out to that whole group to Dave Vacheris, Ron Finn, and uh, the whole team there. Deacon Mike Learned, uh, who uh, was the driving force behind that station for many years, was in attendance. It was great to see him. Bishop Thomas was there, um, Monsignor Oxley, and so many more that I I hesitate to start mentioning people, even though I already have, because I'll leave folks out. But great hospitality, great group of people, big crowd on hand. And uh, we encourage you to support all your, your local Catholic radio stations, wherever you may be listening, and uh, keep up that good work. Um, we got an email here from Camille, who actually goes by CP, I guess. says, good afternoon. My sister and I have several St. Benedict medals and religious items. Some we purchased, and we had them blessed with a simple, regular blessing with holy water. But then one day in church, a man gave me and others a box with a lot of medals, holy water, salt, and some literature explaining how St. Benedict medals need to have the special exorcism blessing. We are concerned that if our other St. Benedict medals aren't blessed with the special Benedictine blessing, that we risk evil being imparted to them. Is this true? Do we have to find a priest who will bless all the other St. Benedict items in this way? Um... No, because presumably the blessing, which is a call upon our Lord to make give, help us in the proper use of the sacramental, in this case the metal, and to protect us from the evils, material and spiritual evils that we face daily. Uh, you know, he's not going to say, I'm sorry, lady, or I'm sorry, sir, but there was no exorcism blessing placed on this. 
Now, it's true. There may very well be, and I'm, I'm assuming in the, uh, you know, in the Book of Blessings or maybe that is used by the Benedictines even, there may be a special formulation. But the blessing which is uh, authorized by the church, uh, it would be found in the, in the Book of Blessings, the English uh, edition of that ritual for the United States, uh, would be sufficient uh, for that. So, uh, no, uh, you don't have to. Uh, you don't have to do that. Now, many priests, especially more traditional ones, yes, they they throw, they put in blessed salt in uh, holy water, and they, you know, d- do that with an intention. It's perhaps more like uh, baptismal water uh, in that respect as well. But this is not obliged by the church, and the authority of the church is what you're. You're calling upon for the blessing to be effective, and your faith in Christ is what you're relying upon for the blessing to be effective. Uh, and so that should be good enough for Catholics. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. Uh, Jeff in Canada writes in, hello, uh, hello, Father, you've been or- ordained, Colin. Oh. My wife's grandfather was a Freemason and has passed away. When cleaning out his home, we found Masonic items and regalia. <coughs> Excuse me. They are in our home right now in a closet. Should we dispose of these items, and if so, how? Uh, you can dispose of them uh, simply by throwing them away. Um, I don't think there's anything uh, necessary beyond that, and uh, that would be sufficient. Uh, I think the idea there is, and this is especially true if there are occult items, and of course, you know, there are a lot of elements of Freemasonry which are ritualistic and religious. For this, one of the reasons the Church condemned it beginning in the 1700s is it presents itself as a humanistic religion. It has chaplains, it has rituals, it has, has uh, ceremonies, and uh, it represents itself as the, you know, the institution that represents all of humanity. Well, there is such an institution in the world, and that's the institution founded by Christ, the Church. So uh, there are many reasons why Catholics can't be Freemasons, and this kind of uh, naturalistic ideology uh, to, as well as this sort of pseudo-religious dimension are, are certainly part of that. Uh, but I think you just you can just, uh, you know, if it's, you can, if it's something small, you might be able to cut it up or just throw it away even, and I think that's, uh, that's the appropriate. Uh, but I would not, in, in general, this would be true with uh, occult items, uh, with any items of that kind, is you would, you would throw them away. Anne writes in, how does a merciful God square with genocide that he asks the Jews to accomplish, like the death of the Canaanites? Well, he was asking them to go in and to, and to re- recover the land which he himself had given them. He's the author of life. He is authority over life. In fact, the Church even teaches that in his uh, all-knowing and all, all-determining providence, the lifespan of each of us is is known and thereby determined by God himself. Uh, so while it would be an injustice for us to punish in that way for the purpose in this case of, of uh, restoring Israel to the descendants of Abraham, it would not be for God who has, who created and therefore may uh, 
may punish and uh, even by death uh, those whom he created. Omar would like to know if you can provide the biblical basis for the differentiation between mortal and venial sin. I think the, the differentiation begins in the Old Testament, where there are sins which are described as uh, requiring capital punishment. Uh, you look at uh, most of the, the, the major sexual sins, you look at uh, idolatry and so on. Here we have the idea of something which is a deadly sin that pollutes the people Israel, and therefore the individual is cast out of the midst because they will infect the rest. The viewpoint of Christ, and therefore of the church, is that the individual is there to be convinced and converted because the church has the power to destroy that, which, that evil which is within them by grace, by conversion, by, by the sacrament of reconciliation. And so it's not the church, to de- church today which uh, calls for a capital retribution against individuals on these very same areas which in the Old Testament uh, were. So I think there is a distinction already uh, existing. We know that there is in those kinds of passages a pointing to what in uh, Catholic theology would be grave matter, serious things that can be found if you go down the Ten Commandments. And the the section on the Catechism dealing with the uh, Commandments does this. There is something central in there which is an evil which God hates. In other words, which is a grave offense against him. But the very same thing, or things which are similar to it, can be a lesser evil. So I, I like to use one which we're all familiar with. We, we say things about other people, and sometimes there, you, civil law you would say slander or libelous or whatever. If we destroy a person's reputation, then the seventh commandment is violated in a grave way. But sometimes people gossip at work or they gossip in their family about, you know, aunt so-and-so or, you know, somebody's sister or something like that. And in doing that, there may not be any attempt or, or a desire to destroy their name, but it's, it, you might say, it besmirches their name. It, it, it stains their name, and it doesn't show respect for them and love for them as a person. So there can be serious matter in all of those commandments and in the things of the old law, and there can be slight matter. And the church simply makes that distinction clear for us. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call one 205 or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. EWTN's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan rolls on. You know, EWTN's National Catholic Register is America's most trusted Catholic news source with a comprehensive view of the world from a Catholic perspective. Give a subscription or subscribe yourself and you can save up to 42%. Visit ncregister.com today, and you can receive daily, weekly, or uh, or even, well, daily, weekly, or alert emails from the register. 
visit EWTN.com and click on subscribe, and you'll find out what the difference between a daily, I think I know the difference between a daily and a weekly email alert. An alert email, I guess that's breaking news of some sort. And, and it, it, it could be alerting you to poorly written copy for a radio program. Maybe that's what the <laughs> alert is for. At any rate, EWTN uh, is National Catholic Register, ncregister.com. First up today is Kathy in Omaha, Nebraska, listening on Spirit Catholic Radio. Kathy, you are on with Colin Donovan. Hi. Uh, I have a question. On Facebook, there's a, a thing on there that says, it has a picture of Our Lady of Lourdes Grotto with her statue showing, mm-hmm. and underneath it it says, Tonight the Virgin Mary will, vi- will visit you and remove hardship, bad luck, worries, and death of your life. Touch Mary and insert amen. Does that border on, on superstition? or Absolutely. Or even... <laughs> doesn't, doesn't border on it, Kathy. It's right smack dab in the middle yeah, of superstition. Also, <laughs> it also borders on stupid because it's appealing to the credulous uh, to do this. And obviously that's one of the troubles with social media is there's a lot of absolute nonsense. Now, somebody may have, by a good intention, you know, thought, well, this would be a good idea, but unless they have control over Our Lady, meaning Our Lady of Lourdes in, under this title, then that's not a guarantee that they can fulfill. And I don't think she's using social media. So, yes, Superstition is this. We think of superstition is, you know, Friday the 13th, walking under a ladder and uh, black cats crossing your path, things like that. The, the actual definition of the, theologically of superstition is to give right worship in a wrong way. In other words, you worship God, but you worship it wrong, wrongly. This would be for the Christian. Obviously, there are many superstitious practices in non-Christian religions, in pre-Christian religions, and so on, uh, that had no basis in you know, the worship of, of God. It was under the color of gods, a pantheon of gods, for example. Uh, so that would be superstitious by our standards. In some way, as St. Paul said regarding the altar of the unknown God in Athens, you know, seeing some way God is existing, as the philosophers did, but not rightly understanding him and certainly not rightly rendering to him worship done under multiple deities or whatever it may be. So that would be that would be the case there and, and we can clearly ignore that. It's just as it's stupid and it's definitely superstitious. Does that confirm your suspicions, Kathy? Uh, yeah, but then I wrote a little thing on there and said, that's not Catholic teaching. And then they wrote back and said, if you want to learn, we'll teach you. We have a priest here. And I said, I've been teaching for 20 years. I think I know what superstition is, but no, I don't need your help. <laughs> yeah. Well. God bl- yep. God bless you, <laughs> Kathy. We appreciate the phone call today. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833 Three nine eight six. Michael is in the Republic of Texas, listening on Sirius XM Channel One Thirty. Michael, you are on with Colin Donovan. Hey, Jack and uh, Donovan, um, Carl. I uh, just wanted to say uh, thank you and uh, God bless you both. Um, I was wondering if you could tell me when and what she wanted us to pray for the Black Madonna in Germany. 
Okay, I, I think you're meaning the Black Madonna that's in Czestochowa in Poland. Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, th- this is a this is an image whose origins are there, there's a number of these around in Rome. There is uh, uh, the the in the Basilica of Saint Mary Majors, which is the highest honored church dedicated to Mary in the Catholic Church. There is a similar kind of image. These black Madonnas are in several places. They're generally attributed to uh, being paintings of St. Luke, so with a Middle Eastern origin. And so something, and obviously the one in Rome is known from the very early centuries, uh, before 500. It was used by Pope Gregory I around 600 when there was a plague, and he... he, um, he had a procession of the image around Rome, and when he was about to, when he crossed the bridge, I think, going to the Castel San Angelo, where there's this, uh, he saw a, what's called that today, he saw an image of St. Michael sheathing his sword, and the plague stopped. So in Rome, they have honored it uh, as a consequence of that since then. The one in Chestahova, as I understand it, and I had to do a quick refresh in my memory here, there is an article on Wikipedia if you wish to read it, but the origins are obviously in the Middle East. It was known in Constantinople, and it was brought north at some time, probably in the 900s, uh, first to the Ukraine and then to Poland. So it's it has this history, and it has a certain uh, miraculous history not unsimilar to that of the one in Rome, and that is, uh, it was the under the care of monks in Chestahova, a monastery there, and during the uh, 1400s, I think it was, this monastery was attacked by the Hussites, and praying to the Madonna, they were they were defeated, and they just, I guess, pulled up and went about their business. So. That's attributed to it, and it is in the last number of several centuries, it's become a great place of pilgrimage and a place where people experience the grace of God and even miracles. Uh, so uh, the ar- exact origins are shrouded in historical mystery, but the suggestion is uh, is the um, uh, drawing or paintings by St. Luke, uh, the uh, evangelist. that help, Michael? Hey, that's great, and I hope it enlightens other people, too. So uh, uh, thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thanks so much for the phone call today. And I would be interesting if they've ever done any actual historical studies. We know of all the scientific studies on the Shroud, which, to my mind, demonstrates its authenticity. But it would be interesting. Uh, I know there are some some of the ancient artworks which have, uh, at least in Christ's case, They've gone back, and although they never knew the origins before, they found similarities on their on the face uh, in the early some of the early icons, especially in the East, all having similar features, which are now which are also discoverable on the Shroud of Turin. You know, so there may be there may be some deep historical connection on some of these things, uh, which is yet to be discovered, and it would be certainly very interesting if anybody ever undertook that work. That opens up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Renee is in Fairfax, Virginia, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Renee, you're on with Kyle and Donovan. 
Hi. Um, I have a question. Um, I just started filling out a living will, <coughs> and i um, 64 years old, so I thought it's about mm-hmm. time. I have one child, and so I just wanted to try to get things straight, and I want to keep it in a Catholic perspective. I am a nurse, mm-hmm. and I've seen, you know, a lot of things go very, very sideways. In sure. Mm-hmm. Hospital ICUs. And in filling out the living will, I think I have most of it figured out, um, but I have a question about the organ donation. How does the Catholic Church look at organ donation? I, mm-hmm. You know, I guess I'm a little old-fashioned, and, and I want my body to stay pretty <laughs> much intact. I don't want cremation. Um, but, um, you know, as far as, I guess I'm torn between if it would help maybe a child, if my heart or my kidneys would be of help to someone, would I want to do that, or would it be preferable, as far as the Church, to keep these things intact? Okay. Um, there's pretty clear guidance on the issue of living wills from the Church, and there is very clear guidance on organ donation in general, and I'll make some comments on both of those. Uh, Living will, I think, is an archaic term that ought to be abandoned because it harkens back to the 70s when this started to be promoted. And it suggests abandoning your, you know, giving your prerogatives to the medical team, uh, writing down, you know, I want to be sustained by extraordinary means or I don't want to be or I want this done or I want these kinds of extraordinary means but not these kinds. And you can spell all of that out. But the living will, as generally conceived, surrenders your authority at that point to the medical team. The general way now that is encouraged by Catholics, and you can get a good summation of all of this on the National Catholic Bioethics Center website, ncbcenter.org. Uh, and they even have examples of, of, of uh, this, uh, these kinds of documents. One is in the advanced directive, which is essentially what that is. And in it, you put all kinds of things, like how if you, are, if you die, you, you want, you know, you want a, if you're ill, you, need, you want a priest there. That's for the benefit unless you die alone and not with family around because of the circumstances. Uh, you want a priest there. You want a Catholic burial. You don't want cremation, the things you've mentioned. Very clear statement of what your will is on the on the medical matters and even those things which come after it. What your care team will do. You obviously want a priest to be to come and give you to administer to you, and if necessary, the last rites and the sacraments and so on. And we know, especially during COVID, this was obstructed by the civil authorities in many cases, which I think was. Uh, criminal, to be to be honest. So the advanced directive does that. The thing that guarantees that your will will reign and not an ethics committee or the medical team is the power of attorney for medical decisions or medical proxy by which you designate a friend or family whom you trust 
And in the advanced directive, you can stipulate that you want your treatment to be according to Catholic moral theology teaching, or just Catholic teaching. And then the person you designate who knows your mind on these things in some detail is then the person that they have to talk to when you're in the bed or gurney and they're trying to decide whether to throw the switch and turn you on. ncbcenter.org, all sorts of resources there. It's EWTN's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Our friends in South Alabama need to hear from you next week. Archangel Radio in Mobile is airing their Spring Pledge Drive next Tuesday through Thursday. So if you're listening in Mobile, Daphne, Fairhope, or anywhere, please support your EWTN Catholic Radio station. Wide open phone lines for you on a Friday, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Eileen writes in, can a person... Who commits well, grievous? We have oh, to I'm sorry. take the second part of uh, her question. Go ahead. Okay. Organ donation. Um, I was just trying to pull the text up quickly, but uh, I, I'll just repeat or paraphrase what way, it if says. We, if, we could, if we could refrain from citing Wikipedia, that would be a bonus. Oh, uh, this would be a be citing the Pope in an official encyclical. Terrific. I like okay, that. Okay, gospel. <laughs> Historical details. I mean, <laughs> I have a pretty good memory, but... Well, a lot of things escape me, of course, and I'm getting older, too. thought you were a man of letters. <laughs> yes, A through Z. <laughs> anyway, uh, organ donation. Um, in Evangelium Vitae, I was going to give you the paragraph so you can go read this and look it up yourself, but um, maybe Mike, who's doing nothing there, <laughs> sitting at the board, can... No, probably not. Okay. Okay. Uh, <laughs> The Pope talks about what a charity organ donation is. Now, he's speaking in generalities that when life is complete and and we donate something to benefit another, uh, that that is a great charity that advances the life of another person, even if it's, you know, your corneas or, or whatever. And obviously... Uh, the moral theology on that is beyond, more extensive than just what the Pope puts in a a statement like that, encouraging it. So what can we give? We can give one of our bilateral organs, like our kidneys. We could give a kidney to help somebody. And uh, uh, for several years, uh, when I lived in Seattle, I went to the University of Washington Hospital and Uh, taking communion there on behalf of the Blessed Sacrament Parish and finding out who needed to, you know, have the last rites and having one of the priests come over and do that or just to have, uh, hear confessions or whatever. And so you would would get many people there for transplants. It's a big transplant center in the good sense uh, of that. And so that's something the church approves on. The difficulty comes when it's not a kidney or a lobe of the liver or a lung, which is uh, something I think they even do now. But it's, a, it's a, an organ which, of which there is only one, like your heart. Uh, and so the church excludes two things. Of the bilateral organs, the sexual organs, in other words, the, those organs which produce the egg and the sperm, those are so particular and unique to us and sacred, therefore, 
that those cannot be no- donated. The church, of course, also forbids other manipulations, but in this topic, those cannot be donated. The heart, because it's a singular organ, has to be. You have to be dead. This is where the difficulty comes in on heart donation. Because how do you determine that the person is dead? The historical way, the cardiovascular way, is they stop breathing, their heart seemed to be stopped, and we just declared them dead. We know for a fact from cases over history that sometimes there might have been slow respiration or something going on, but the person was still alive at some low rate and was buried, subsequently buried, uh, and they were still alive. So that's a, that's a rule of reason. You need to have a moral certainty. It doesn't mean an absolute certainty. So a process of determining what constituted brain death was developed, and it was presented to Rome in the 90s, and uh, it was approved within certain limits, and that is testable procedures by which it determined that the whole of the brain, not just our thinking parts, but also the brain stem, which controls our autonomic nervous system, our operation of our digestion, of our lungs, of our heart, and so on, have to be some moral certainty that these are no longer functioning and can no long, can not be sustained in their function. And when that is, of course, the person could request to be in their advanced directive or whatever, request to be removed from uh, extraordinary means. In other words, that they are sustained only by mechanical means. Now, how do you get a good heart out of that? This has been medicine's problem. <coughs> And so these rules were established, and the church said, based on what is being said here by the doctors in the 90s, in a particular uh, uh, conference that was held there, it can be permitted that having established that the person is wholly and completely brain dead, that this is death. Now, again, with a moral certainty, now they're discovering cases where there might be some low level of activity that they can't discern and the person revives a bit. People who seem to be permanently comatose and aren't really and sustained by equipment. So there's a lot of problems with determining what satisfies the standard. And there have been studies done to show that, uh, that not all medical centers are adhering to the standards that the church approved. So the church gave some standards, which means it's making a theological judgment about what is a sufficient meeting a standard of brain death. The doctors are having their own standards and their own methods like, you know, well, this person's dead, we declare them dead, we keep their body warm, we take their heart out. That's not the standard that the church approved. So with regard to the heart, I think it's a very difficult situation to put donation of that organ into an advanced directive. That's my opinion because you cannot know what the team that is in your case in some unforeseen situation will they will observe the moral niceties. So this is this is the danger and there have been studies and uh, I'm certainly our doctors at 
uh, <laughs> CMA and, and others who have looked at this more deeply and, and are familiar with these studies could go into it more deeply. So organ donation, a good thing, a charitable thing within the limits established by the church. We are in a very difficult time with regard to uh, the brain death standard because of the lack of a uniform and acceptable standard that satisfies the criteria with John Paul II uh, said were uh, were sufficient to make a, a have a moral certainty as opposed to an absolute certainty that the person is brain dead. 833-288-EWTN. Wide open phone lines for you at 833-288-3986. It's a free phone call. <coughs> Excuse me. Anywhere in North America. Can I go to Eileen's question now? Go ahead. Okay. Eileen writes in, can a person who commits grievous sins their whole life still be forgiven and still go to heaven? Yes. Uh, we know the only sin that prevents that is the sin against the Holy Spirit is at the moment of death, the person considers themselves or thinks their sins to be so great that God can't forgive them. This is a distrust of, this is a calumny against God, in other words, that we would say that God is not loving and generous enough to forgive our sins if we ask for it, if we are repentant and asked. So that's the sin against the, the Holy Spirit. Uh, so up until that final decision is made by the person who is currently alive that I am unforgivable, um, have, having despaired, in other words, then yes, no matter how many mortal sins you have committed, and we know that ex-abortionists who killed thousands, we know <coughs> that uh, Satanists who uh, came to came back to faith or came to faith, we know of the, the many who agree, committed grievous evils, uh, who nonetheless repented, and whether they do it before the end of their life so that they can live a meaningful Christian life for some time before they die, or even if they were to do it on their deathbed, uh, God would forgive them. I have wrestled our producer extraordinaire, Michael McCall, from his coma, and he is <laughs> informing us that uh, you were referencing the uh, Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 2296. And probably elsewhere in there, I think the actually the... Um, yeah. On, on the organ donation. Yes. Yeah, on that one. Yes, there you go. Right. Yep. That, that'll be sufficient. Yep. Um, Nancy wants to know, why don't local parishes tell the congregation who to vote for? Because <laughs> <laughs> our true home is heaven. We are citizens of this uh, earthly veil of tears in whatever country or state we exist. And so we contribute to that as we can, as the early Christians did, uh, praying for the emperor, uh, serving in civil capacities where the moral law permitted them to, uh, and doing, loving their neighbor and serving their neighbor. Remember, the early Christians were identified as see how they love. In other words, they love the poor. <coughs> and St. Lawrence said to his execution, or to the emperor, these, what I have, the treasures of the church. And he brought the poor to show the treasures when he thought it was gold and silver. So that, 
that's basically the long and the short of it. Eric says, what should someone do if they find out that a priest has broken the seal of confession? Report it to the bishop. Uh, we've been talking about moral certainty a lot. At least have a moral certainty and not a rumor. Or if you know somebody who is a direct witness of it, encourage them to report it to the bishop. Because in the moment he did it, he's excommunicated, and so uh, his status in the church would have to be uh, judged by the church at the, from that point forward. 833-288-EWTN. Still time for your phone calls at 833-288-3986. Brian would like to know, to what degree is it okay for us to, quote-unquote, struggle to assent or question any infallible teachings of the church? Well, um, on the one hand, you don't want to think, well, I have... I have this line I can march up to without crossing over it because uh, you, every once in a while you hear the people who go, well, I'll, get, I'll take a look over this cliff and I'll go over the fence that they put next to the Grand Canyon and I go over the fence to get a selfie and now they find themselves, well, at the bottom of the canyon to put it nicely. So lines in the sand, if it encourages people to go up to those lines, are not a good thing. We have a moral obligation to believe what God has revealed. Part of that obligation includes the obligation to believe what the church teaches infallibly. So this is the question uh, that he's asking. We have these dogmas that are defined by the church with the charism of infallibility. They're guaranteed not by the church, but they're guaranteed by God. And so... Therefore, we have an obligation to believe that God has spoken the truth. Now, people can, you know, struggle with believing that. And I would say, rather than fixating on whether you cross some line, do everything you can to strengthen your belief. Uh, we're talking about a belief in faith, so... Uh, as I think I recommended in the last week's show for somebody, the the act of faith, um, which says those things which we believe, what God has revealed and <coughs> what the church has taught. So we, we want to strengthen our faith. Now, if there's a particular difficulty, then we uh, the, the humble thing to do is to seek somebody who knows more than you, uh, to solve your problem with whatever the doctrine is. And so somebody who is familiar with it, the teaching, whether it's a, a priest or an educated layman, of which increasing a number of quite well-educated lay people in the church who can satisfy that role in, in the parish or uh, other elsewise, and to seek the, to seek maybe we can get hung up on something we think it's a problem, but it's really no problem at all. So you're wanting to get clarity about that which you question. And you may simply be looking at it wrong. And the person who can see all of that and knows how the 
teaching should be understood and knows some of the questions people have with it uh, can help you set that straight. So I think there are different levels of the question. Uh, St. Thomas Aquinas talks about uh, the primary obligation of faith, of course, is to believe in God. That's why we can say a person, even outside the church, can have faith if God has given them theological faith. Um, we know that there are ways of getting it objectively, and that's like through baptism. Under the old law, he says, this, the, the, the Jews as well, because Abraham did, because they believed God, and it was credited to them as righteousness. And from that belief in God comes, as I said, belief in what revelation contains as from God and belief in what the church teaches as part of that revelation. So we need that faith to be strengthened, and that's removing the doubts and increasing the faith, the two things, because they're not unconnected, and you need to do both. You need to pray for greater faith and do what's necessary for that, but Humanly speaking, removing the doubts is not a small thing uh, in trying to overcome obstacles to understanding and believing some particular uh, article <coughs> of the faith or infallible teaching. Be sure to check out the Bear Wozniak Adventures Saturday night, 6 p.m. Eastern Time. This week's Bear's guest is Deacon Bob Evans. I wonder if they're going to talk about the theology of sausage. I don't know. Probably a different Bob Evans. Probably, probably. At 6 p.m., the Bear Wozniak Adventure, 6 p.m. Eastern, Saturday night, right here on EWTN Radio. Next up is Hannah, a first-time caller in San Antonio, Texas, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Hannah, you are on with Colin Donovan. Hi, how are you? I'm pretty good, Hannah. What's your question today? I would like to know... Um... For everybody who, uh, prior to Jesus dying, coming, and then dying, going down to hell and opening the gates of hell, did everybody, up to that point, did everybody go to hell, or was there still a judgment? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, we, were, we were just talking about one of those fellows. We were talking about Abraham. And in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus himself in the parable of the rich man and the poor man who sat outside his door and the rich man just walked by him and went back in his house every day, uh, he talks about the bosom of Abraham. That was about as much as Israel knew about the afterlife. And you go around the Mediterranean in those days and you see that you have the, you know, you have the Hades of the Greeks. You have the Sheol of the Israelites, the Hebrew word, um, and different. There were the, you know, the Egyptians, the uh, cross the river sticks in a boat to get to the other side. Uh, they had these various myths to explain that. But in the Latin world, it was simply the inferior world, the place of the dead, would be another way of putting it, and that's about all they knew. So we we've gotten since our Lord was here, we've achieved a certain insight into that through including what he said there in that parable. So the just of the old law, like Abraham, the church affirms that Adam and Eve are among the just. We can assume all the great uh, persons who serve the plan of salvation despite their human weaknesses like King David and so on. Uh, so many of uh, the people who lived before Christ will have 
look to God for their salvation, uh, whether in what, how they conceived him, especially among the Israelites and those from whom they came. Um, and as St. Thomas says, they would have even conceived of their need for a Redeemer. So a remote understanding of the need for a Redeemer, that we can't do it ourselves, that we need somebody, you know, if we haven't lived a good life, and the natural law tells us a good deal about that, if we haven't lived a good life, then how are we then to have a good afterlife? So you can have a remote idea of Christ even before Christ, and this is what saved according to Aquinas. So that part of it we know. Now we'll know that the evil people went to the other place. They made a choice against God, and we know that the those who were not pure in their justice would need to be purified. And so we're a little unclear on all of that, except that Christ gives us some hints. He talks about purgatory in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, make, make peace with your opponent on your way to the judge, lest, what does he say? Unless you are condemned and you are sent into the prison. And then he adds, from which you won't get out until you have paid the last pen, the last uh, part of the penalty. It's the penalty of justice. And that's what purgatory does. Because from the other place, you never get out. So you can see glimpses of what will be the full doctrine of the church. Uh, heaven, obviously, which was opened by Christ, was not available to anybody until the God-man uh, entered in and took with him uh, the just of the old law. Uh, and the bosom of Abraham, the fathers of the church speak of the limbo of the patriarchs, the place of waiting, you know, sort of outside the door, waiting, waiting, waiting for the Messiah. And then the other place, which we don't want to go to, um, and act frankly was seldom spoken of in any detail until the Gospels, uh, mm -hmm. which is a place of paying the eternal debt of, uh, of sin against, essentially, God, disobedience to God. So we have a lot more information than the contemporaries of our Lord. He, of course, knew all of this and more, uh, but uh, he left it to the church to flesh this out in detail from the things that he said and, and from what they received, we received from Judaism. We're heading out of Omaha, Nebraska. Sharon is listening on Spirit Catholic Radio. Sharon, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hi, I was listening to the donor question. I mm -hmm. have a donor on my driver's license, and so how would they determine? You said something about not the heart. So if something happened, they look at my driver's license, what would happen? Uh, that's like a living will. You've basically given them carte blanche for whatever the transplant team in that place. I, I personally do not have that on my driver's license for that reason, because it's out of your control once you've told uh, you know, your county that, oh, on my driver's license, yes, uh, I put that to a donor. So you've lost control. You may be in an injured in a place where there is obviously no possibility of an advanced directive, uh, and a proxy being appointed. That could happen to anybody, you know, that they're, 
their advance directive and their the person who would be their proxy is 2,000 miles away or on another continent if they're traveling overseas or something. So those are always risks that are in God's providence. But I think uh, for me, I can't put that on there because I have no control of of what will be done um, when I'm in that, you know, emergency room, in that ICU or wherever it, it is. Michelle's a first-time caller in Greenville, South Carolina, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Michelle, thanks for holding. You're on with Colin Donovan. Hi, Michelle. Are you there? Uh, Colin Martin writes in, What is the Catholic teaching on sola fide, and how does the Church arrive at her conclusion when there are verses that clearly say we are saved by faith? We are, and also saved by, saved by good works. And so the question is to understand what that means. Uh, one thing we are, there is no verse of, despite Luther's uh, contention, is that we are saved by safe faith alone, we might say we're also saved by baptism because we know that it's through the water of life that we have the possibility of eternal life. We'd also say we're saved by receiving our Lord's Eucharistic body and blood because he talks about that in the Gospel of John. So there is nowhere you can contend that we are saved by a single thing. But there is a logic to being saved by works and by charity. Because the works meant there, or works in faith, the works meant there is acts of charity. And he makes that, James makes that explicit, that we, you know, it is my faith which motivates those works. So we are saved by the theological virtues, which is exactly what the church teaches. Our faith in God, our hope in God that he will save us, and our love for God and our neighbor. And this is why by these three things we are known. And the greatest of these is love, as St. Paul tells us himself in 1 Corinthians 13. On behalf of our host, Colin Donovan, our producer, Michael McCall, call screener Matt Kubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in, and thanks for another great week of EWTN's Open Line. Back at it again on Monday with Father John Trujillo. Until we get together then, God bless. <laughs>